Welcome to Scavenger's Horde. We're a Star Wars podcast offering thoughts on whatever takes our fancy, be it the latest show on Disney+, Plus or a weird Legends novelisation you may have forgotten existed. If you're new here, let me introduce myself. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 191, and it's 21st of February, 2023. Um, so yeah, how are you doing, Kirsty? I can see you've been watching lots of movies and reading lots of books as usual, which is impressive. Yeah, and it's it's been a bit of a mix. Um, if people listened last time, I had finished reading Anna Karenina, and I said I was going to w- watch some movie adaptations, and uh, it's like that Arrested Development gif. I don't know what I was expecting. <laughs> Dead Dove Do Not Eat. <laughs> Oh god! Do you, do you want to explain which versions you were watching? And yeah, I watched the uh, Vivian Lee 1948 version, and I I'd said that I was going to start with this one. I also watched the Joe Wright, the 2012 one with Keira Knightley in the lead role. Yes, uh, and Donal Gleeson as Levin, my boy. How was Donal, in your opinion, given that you're so attached to Levin? I thought Donal did a great, great. job. I have. I've read since watching the film that people were a bit mixed on like well one people like have a firm like maybe a physical image of what a character should look like in their mind they're like oh it shouldn't be this skinny redhead right yeah <laughs> I thought he was good you know um but I I had measured expectations for how prominently he would be in it because I think you warned me that he wasn't you know like a, a lead or anything yeah. But he was actually in it more than I thought he was going to be in because in the 1948 version, Levin is in like two scenes and he barely speaks. <laughs> oh God. So. It makes you wonder why they even bothered to keep him around at all if they use him that right. little. Honestly, if I hadn't read the book, I would have no idea who he was. <laughs> so so oh, Donal no. was better than that. Okay, good. So that was an upgrade. And it's not his fault, you know, it's just what the writer and the director choose to do with the story and the reality is it's this huge epic sprawling novel that like seriously goes deep with these characters inner lives and that's what makes it so special and you can't do that in an hour and a half or two hours yes of course so you know they have to have like more of a honed perspective on the story and they're going to focus on Anna and Vronsky and um but Matthew McFadden as Stepan, Steva, Anna's brother, was perfect. Right, good. And it felt like it was almost an audition reel for Succession. Nice. It's kind of you, you can see, you can see Tom in there. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, it's worth watching for that. Like, I think overall the film is not great. I think you said that you'd seen it right, but you were just a bit like, I don't know what to think or care about these characters. Yeah, I saw it a long time ago, probably close to when it came out. Um, I didn't see it in cinemas, but I feel like I saw it on TV or DVD maybe. And I feel like my main memory is that it was like a beautiful, glossy fashion spread. You know, it looked stunning. You know, amazing costumes, beautiful cinematography and stuff. But I was just like, why am I meant to care about these people? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like the Baz Luhrmannification of Tolstoy. Yes. Like it's very opulent. I I I'm interested in like the whole conceit they have of like the the theater set and everything, but then that runs through the whole story and it get starts getting a bit old. Yeah, and doesn't quite work for like the whole story. Outstays as welcome. It's, you know, it tries to do something different with it, but it doesn't feel very Tolstoy. Yeah. 
But I'm now a Tolstoy expert, you see. After yeah, and of course, you've clearly written the book on the subject. <laughs> it was really, really funny because I read this book, immediately fell in love with it, and I'm already that insufferable person that's like, oh, this this movie trashed it. <laughs> these fake fans. It's on Tolstoy's grave. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You're gatekeeping Tolstoy. I love it. You've learned all the right lessons from Star Wars fandom, Kirsty. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> anyway, no sorry. Worries. I immediately went into what I've been watching, which I don't really necessarily think is meant to be our order, but No, 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 it's fine. Just... I very much set you up for that with my intro and I wanted to hear what you thought about those movies. So um yeah, it sounds like you were at least mildly entertained by them even though they were awful adaptations. Is that fair? It's hard because I, I don't want to say awful. It's just like there's a limitation with the medium. Sure. I need to look for like a, an, a a series that can go more in depth. Because I started with the Vivian Lee one. And Vivian Lee was good in the role, yeah. you know. But um, I, I watched that just because it was available on the Criterion channel. And it's perfectly fine. It's just I wonder if you haven't read the book, what are you really getting out of it? Like... How are you connecting these events together with the characters' motivations? It just felt like a series of things happening rather than like something that really feels kind of emotionally real. Yeah. No, for sure. Whereas to me, the book really feels like that vital, like I'm really, really invested. Yeah. You know? Something about those um, Russian novels can't be beat. <laughs> Like I'm not even joking though that there is something about like certain Russian authors and stuff where they've just got this like je ne sais quoi. I sound like a snob, <laughs> um, but yeah, they're just not all Russians, obviously, but, but some Russians are very good writers. People from other <laughs> countries are also very good writers. So now I'm going to shut up. <laughs> Sorry. Some French writers have that je ne sais quoi, you know. What? No way! No way! They're not possible. Um, cool. Um, what have you been watching? <laughs> yes, no, I've. Um, sorry, I need to bring myself down to earth. I'm too amused. Um, yeah, I've watched a few films. Haven't really got through many books recently, so the, these will all be movies. Uh, so the first one I'd like to give a shout out to is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack Nicholson, which is obviously a very famous movie. Um, and I'd never seen it before. Um, and I got lucky enough that there's like an independent cinema in London. There's many independent cinemas in London. But this one particular one was showing this movie. And I was able to go along and see it with a friend. And I thought it was amazing. I absolutely loved it. Instant five stars. New favourite. Um, and yeah, I feel like it was just different from what I was expecting. So I feel like I was expecting a very heavy drama and there is obviously really oh, heavy okay. stuff going on you know in this movie is there's very serious themes but mostly it's a comedy you know and yeah. it's a really genuinely <laughs> laugh out loud funny comedy as well and yeah I, I just loved how it had me howling in certain scenes you know it's just so so funny um and yeah the nurse ratchet um character that she was fascinating to me as well because you know, you hear about that character through pop culture, right? You know, because she's like one mm -hmm. of the most infamous villains. But when the movie started, at first it's like, oh, I don't know why everyone keeps on saying she's so terrible. <laughs> I, I think she's been quite reasonable, to be honest. I feel like these men are all being a bit unfair to her. Um, you you know, and then obviously things progress and it's amazing how much you hate that woman <laughs> by the end of the film. And oh, yeah. God, it's, yeah, it's just so well done. I obviously won't spoil anything. But I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, I think you've seen it but a while ago, haven't you, Kirsty? 
a long time ago and I read the book as a teenager as well. Nice. I remember, I, I would definitely like recommend that based on, you know, how I remember feeling at the time, but it's been a long time for both. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously you just, you can't beat Jack Nicholson in a, in a role like that. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah. He, he's just like so dynamic and brings so much to it. So I feel like, I know I've seen him in other movies, but other than Cuckoo's Nest, the only one where I can really vividly remember him in my head is um, The Shining, obviously. You know, that's the other big standout role that I've seen for sure of his. And yeah, boy, talk about range. (laughs) You know, very... (laughs) In a way, the similarities between the characters, you know, they have similar, like, extreme personalities, but they're very different types of extreme personalities. (laughs) Um, yeah. yeah he just has so much charisma yeah. he, he's just so compelling to watch and yeah even though he's like objectively like a bad dude in a lot of ways and he does some terrible things in the movie y- you do root for him you know and you really really want him to succeed and yeah but I'm gonna shut up so I don't want to spoil it um, <laughs> but yeah it's a really really great movie so if you haven't seen it watch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest mm. uh, yeah how about you Kirsty? what's something else you've been watching I watched Italian-American by Martin Scorsese. Mamma mia! I think it's on HBO Max. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you just couldn't help yourself. I could not help myself at all. Apologies. Um, is that a documentary? I'm not super familiar yeah, with it. Yeah, it's about his parents. Aww. It's just such a joy. Oh, that's so nice. Like, it was... I, I knew I was going to be delighted by it, but I just... It was such a delight. Um, his parents are such characters... You get Catherine Scorsese's pasta sauce recipe. And it's just, I mean, it, it was just like a real comfort watch. Nice. And um, obviously, like, he asked them lots of questions about their family history in Sicily and what it was like for them growing up in America. And yeah, just really, really lovely. Oh, that sounds great. So I've seen, I think there's like a talk show, like Letterman maybe, that Scorsese went on with his mum. And you like, I think she was like teaching them how to cook or something, or specifically teaching Letterman how to cook. And yeah, she's like the ultimate like stereotypical like Italian matriarch, basically. And yeah, yeah she seemed so lovely, really, really wonderful. Yeah, that's, that was just a joy. Yeah, no, fantastic. I'll add that to my very long list. I would really be interested in that movie. Yeah, so I'll say my next pick now. Um, and that is Todd Field's Tar, um, which has had lots of memes and jokes going around about it on Twitter. But it's genuinely an amazing movie. And it's that wonderful thing where it gets better the more I think about it. So I feel like I initially gave it 4.5 stars, which is obviously a really high rating. But the more I reflect on it, the more tempted I am to bump it up to five stars. I'd love to watch it again. I'm not sure I will while it's in cinemas because it's really long and there's only so many hours in each day. Um, But yeah, it was just a really compelling movie. And I think what's best about it is how it creates such like a vivid, fascinating character in Lydia Tarr, who's Kate Blanchett's character, the lead, because she's um, a famous composer essentially Um, but she's also an asshole and it's just this fascinating character study about how someone can be absolutely riddled with contradictions because while she's a trailblazing female conductor in a profession where it's not very common for women to reach the top levels basically she's built up her own mythos by 
like being inspired by men and by constantly trying to emulate men essentially it's like she's trying to shrug off anything about herself that could be seen as like feminine or vulnerable and it's sort of just this really interesting deep dive into what that does to a person and yeah it's just and it's funny and it's compelling and it's dramatic and it's all the things and it has one of the best endings I've seen in years <laughs> it's just it, I, I won't spoil what the ending is but it's Lydia conducting a, an orchestra and it, there's a pan the camera pans away to something and the something is just truly a sight to behold and now I'm going to shut up because um, yeah it, it just you need to see it basically I I can't wait to watch this yeah, one. I, I feel I like it would be totally your jam, Kirsty. I think you'd really like it. I just love her, so I'll watch Kate Blanchett and yeah. anything. I love her. I, like, she's done lots of great performances before, but I feel like this might be the best I've ever seen her. And I'm I'm not like a Kate Blanchett superstar, and I haven't seen everything she's ever done. But, you know, I've seen stuff like Carol, and I, I feel like she was better here than in Carol. And in Carol, she was amazing, you know, so yeah. that says a lot. Cool. So, yeah, what's your next pick, um, Kirsty? Well, <laughs> I watched the menu mm-hmm. and I had fun with it. Yeah. So I thought I'd talk about it. And I know you've seen it too. It was just so, I mean, it is like, it's a comedy satire, you know, or, or a satire of a, a particular kind of horror movie and a satire of like foodie culture. But it was just, it was ridiculous. And I had a lot of fun with it. So. Yeah. No, I I enjoyed the menu as well. It's kind of like. I feel like it's kind of dumb, but I feel like it's also aware that it's like really dumb and ridiculous. Yeah, I think so. You know, so. I don't feel like it's got pretensions about what it is because the whole point is it's trying to ridicule the pretensions associated with like food culture and stuff. Um, which is someone who absolutely balks at the idea of paying more than I don't know, like twenty pounds for a main, and even twenty pounds is absolutely pushing it to be honest. I can like relate to that sentiment, you know. I much prefer like a good, hearty, humble meal over like some sort of like work of artistry on the plate, kind of. Some like if I want art, I'll go to a gallery, um, you know, not a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because like I'm someone who thinks of myself as oh, I love food, yeah, you know. And then I watch something like this, and I'm like, oh, not like that. <laughs> <laughs> like honestly, Kirsty, the stuff that they were making in the film, and I think this is the point. To me, it didn't even look like food. You know, I was no. like, that's not food. That doesn't count. No. no. I mean, and obviously the Anya Taylor-Joy character is meant to be sort of like the audience insert, right? So you're reacting the way that yeah. she is. Like, uh, I want food and that's not it. <laughs> so. Exactly. I'm starving. <laughs> yeah. I could really relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's funny when it just starts to take a turn because obviously you go in having a vague notion of what the, the genre is going to be, but it like takes a while to set it up you know but that just makes it all the more hilarious when things start going wrong and you start to see people figuring out what's actually happening to them I mean, it's horrible obviously it's also like got that horror element but it is also meant to be funny yeah so i'm not going to feel terrible about laughing at the things that yeah, happen exactly <laughs> it's so over the top yeah no supremely yeah so the next thing i'd like to recommend is i'll warn people it's extremely heavy um because it's a documentary series um called and i'm sure everyone's going to be queuing up to watch this because it sounds so fun it's called the us and the holocaust so obviously that's very serious subject matter right but and i've seen various like documentaries about the holocaust before and like read books and things but this documentary was really interesting because it had a very specific angle 
and it was specifically looking at the relationship of like America you know from like the 20s through to the 40s you know when the Holocaust was in full swing I guess um, and just exploring why there wasn't more help essentially you know why they didn't take in refugees you know and all the fraught political discourse surrounding that um, and it's a really intense long series of films um, like 400 minutes in total so it's a big time commitment um, but yeah if you're interested in that part of history you know and particularly America's response to the Holocaust I was very impressed it was very deep very thorough and I learned a lot from it that I'd just never even really thought about before so I didn't know you know to what extent America taking in refugees and stuff so I knew that more could have been done by all countries to be clear not just America um but yeah like it really set the context really well and brought it to life there's like a contrast between like the big political developments and also just individuals personal stories um and yeah it was really moving and powerful so I recommend that even though it's a very heavy watch that's the new Ken Burns. Yes, one, it is. Yeah, yeah. Like he's I'm not sure I've seen any of his other documentaries, but he's quite a famous documentary maker, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Did you watch that because of partly because of our discussion last time with To Be or Not To Be? Oh, that's a good point. I feel like it, that did inspire me actually. It's basically I found it on iPlayer. You know, so part of the reason okay. I watched it is because it's very accessible to me, you know, because if you have a TV license in the UK, you have iPlayer, basically. So everyone has this. But I think, you know, because we just had the discussion about to be or not to be. Yeah, I think it definitely made it stick out to me and be like, oh, yeah, I want to learn more about that part of history. Well, I'll definitely get to that at some point. Thank you. Yeah. And I think then you'd like to recommend some mystery novels on a slightly more upbeat turn of events, Kirsty, in terms of our recommendations. Well, I just thought I'd mention them because I I can never work out. Are we like recommending things or are we just talking about what we've watched and read recently? Um, I think honestly, this is a space for us to just talk about whatever we happen to have strongish opinions on. You know, if you saw something okay. where you're completely meh, then don't don't bother talking about it. Oh, okay. But oh, you know, you can talk about things you're a mer on as long as you've got things to say. So go ahead, Kirsty. Well, Glass Onion is probably still on people's minds, right? Because that came out relatively recently. And if people are still in the mood for a mystery, although I know Poker Face is about to start, so people are probably just looking forward to that. But um, I I read so much Agatha Christie. She's basically like my comfort author at this Aww. point. And the great thing is that there are so many books to get through. Still, I think I'm still only about halfway nice. through. And I do some rereads as well. So... Um, this week, I reread The Mysterious Affair at Styles, which is the first Hercule Poirot novel. And uh, Sad Cypress, which, well, this one was new to me. Well, this is not a reread, but that's 19th in Poirot's series. And I think there's about 33 Poirot books in total, plus plays and stuff. Um, and I just, I always enjoy them. So I think if people are kind of like in that mystery mode still after Ryan's new film, Obviously, Ryan's a huge Christie fan. Like, I, I would recommend giving one a go. And Hugh Fraser is great with the audiobooks. So that's often a great way to experience Nice. Them. They're just a lot of fun. You know, always entertaining. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, it's still a source of massive shame that I haven't read any Agatha Christie novels. Like, Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be ashamed. Oh yeah, no, no, it's not like I like go to sleep at night sobbing because of God, I'm so sorry. I, I mean, up until three years ago, I hadn't okay. either. I think I started at 
towards the beginning of the pandemic yeah. daisy was in the orient express yes right and then there was death, death on the, the nile. nile yeah the masterpiece yeah <laughs> yeah i don't love the kenneth Branagh films but i love that he loves christine yeah. so even no, though exactly. his, you can tell he's having the time of his life playing that character so i yeah. respect that i will watch i will watch all of those that come out that he does because i don't think they're great but like i just i like that he's a christy fan too and he's, that's what he's choosing to do right yeah. now no exactly live your dreams um, it, I, I feel like it's a bit similar <laughs> to what john favreau is doing with the mandalorian to be honest, <laughs> yeah. but with Agatha Christie novels, which is like cool and nerdy. Now, obviously, Favreau is also sure. very nerdy, but it's a different kind of nerdiness when it's about detective. Yeah, novels. I think you know I'll, I'll respect Ryan more for what he's doing with Benoit Blanc because he's tried to do, you know, and very successfully, I think, done his own Poirot. Right, he has his own original character, and now he has his own series. But Kenneth Branagh's over there having fun too, yeah. so. Power to him. It's good. Is there, obviously you've now read a lot of Agatha Christie books. Is there one you'd recommend to like a newcomer or is like a really great, entertaining read that's like a good place to start? Um, I often recommend Crooked House, okay. which is not one of her typical, it's not one that follows one of her detectives. So okay. it's different in that respect. So is it like standalone kind of, like it's not recurring characters at all? uh yeah it's like yeah i think everyone in that is specific to that novel yeah and it's kind of told from the perspective of like one of the characters in broad okay no that sounds interesting so like and, and also less intimidating to be honest because th- there's like the trap where if you read a poirot one you're like oh man i now need to want to read all of them <laughs> and it's like a big yeah although the beauty of all of those as well is that you don't necessarily have to start with the first one i think the Mysterious Affair at Styles is the first... No, actually, no, that's not true. I started with The Orient Express. Right, yeah, yeah, that makes um, sense. So you have Daisy Ridley to thank, in a way. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Nice. But yeah, no, I'll note down Crooked House. Hopefully I'll get that to some point this year. Right, nice. So yeah, on the subject of Daisy Ridley's film career outside of Star Wars, which is my smooth transition away from our recommendations... Um, we did briefly want to flag that she's just had a new movie premiere at Sundance um, called Sometimes I Think About Dying, um, which is a title bound to create a problematic Google search history. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been getting really good reviews. And in particular, Daisy's performance has been getting great reviews, which I'm really happy for because, yeah, I feel like poor Daisy's really been caught out by the pandemic, essentially, in terms of career development, you know, because... No one could release anything for a few years, or at least not in a meaningful way. Um, and yeah, it's only now, I think, that things are kicking back into gear, like in terms of business as usual at Hollywood and movie making. Um, so yeah, I'm really glad she seems to have got a good dramatic role and really been able to prove herself in it. Um, so yeah, I presume this is one you'll be interested in seeing eventually, Kirsty. Definitely. Um, and not just because it's Daisy, but because it looks like the kind of film that I would be interested yeah. in. Yeah, it's. I don't know an awful lot about like the actual business of movie making, but it does seem like some films have been more affected than others, and like certain like workers, like actors and directors, have have been stalled in a way that others haven't. Yeah. No, no, mm-hmm. that's true. Like, I think certain films, you know, they've been like bulletproof. You know, when it comes to all the disruption. Maybe it's just a question of money. I don't know. 
Yeah, I think so. And to be fair to Daisy in this film in particular, I do think it will probably be an uphill battle because it sounds like it's a very small drama. Um, it's about a woman who's very like introverted and very isolated and she starts to open herself up to a colleague, you know, when he expresses an interest in her. And to me, that sounds like really like potentially fascinating, you know, like a really cool character study. But it's obviously not an inherently commercial film, you know, it's not a horror, it's mm. not a fantasy, it's not a sci-fi or anything. They don't have a distributor yet because a lot of the time when films go to a festival like Sundance, they're looking for a distributor. So the films will get reviews and then hopefully there's enough buzz about the movie, then a distributor pays money to buy it and distribute it. Um, I don't think that movie's been picked up yet, but I really hope it is because, yeah, people need to see it, particularly Daisy Ridley fans who've been a bit stuffed. And all the reactions seem really positive. They do, for sure. And it sounds like a challenging role, so it's really great if... And I, I've seen some of the reactions, like Spotlight Daisy specifically, saying that she does amazingly in that in that role. Yeah. So very pleased for exactly. her. Exactly. So I always feel like she showed like really great range and nuance in Star Wars, to be honest, you know, which I don't think was always recognised by people. But yeah, I think in this type of film, you know, where there's no like bells and whistles, you know, and there's no like explosions or like big flashy set pieces... You know, people be forced to focus on the performance and see what she's capable of. So, yeah, it sounds like a really good move for her career. So I'm happy for her. Same. Pick up some couple of wine yeah, in the meantime. Exactly. Do my part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get listed as an executive producer for buying some wine. Um, okay, fantastic. I feel like that's all the non-Star Wars stuff rounded up. So um, thank you for bearing with us. Hopefully you enjoyed. Um, we've got an exciting segment coming up on Revisiting Rogue One. So don't go anywhere while we just briefly talk about the trailer for The Mandalorian Season 3. Um, see, I feel like it's confusing because they've shown trailers at various conventions and stuff. And I've seen leaked versions of those trailers. But I'm not sure if this is the first officially released proper full-length trailer for this season. I think it yeah, is. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like it probably is. Um, but yeah, to me, it looked fun. Like, we're not going to do, like, in-depth analysis of this trailer, right? Because we don't have a great deal to say. But it looked fun. It looked very consistent with what we've seen before from The Mandalorian, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But yeah, going into this, I'm not expecting any, like, huge about faces or changes in direction you know it's still favreau led you know so i think it's gonna be or maybe that's what they want us to think (laughs) what do you think they might have in store kirsty how might how might they be surprising (laughs) us (laughs) no i've learned my lesson (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna turn it into like a deep soul soul search and mediation on the nature of existence I i don't think that's gonna happen i'm sorry i just cannot go over how funny it is that they did the big emotional send-off and then he's back already. Oh, it is hilarious. <laughs> Absolutely hilarious. Way to undercut your own emotional drama. <laughs> I, I've actually seen discussion of it with people saying that there's obviously going to be a, you know, previously on The Mandalorian, you know, so they always have that when there's a new season. It's very reasonable. Um, but in this but to case... what end? Like, what's the point? <laughs> no, no, hear me out. So in this case, they're obviously going to have to incorporate clips from the bloody book of Boba Fett into that recap right to give people some concept of why baby Yoda is back in the show and can you imagine if you just completely skipped book of Boba Fett and you're not terminally online and you're not like a major Star Wars fan you'd be watching that recap and you'd be like what the fuck hang on when when did that happen (laughs) and I, I just cannot get away from this point and I know I've brought it up many times before I'm sorry 
it's not just the what; it's the why.、Mm, yeah. Why are they making these choices? I, I just don't understand the, the decision behind that narrative, like structure to have this emotional separation as the climax of the second season, and then the third season he's back already. I just. What? <laughs> I think Kirsty and I. I'm trying to think about how to say this while still being diplomatic. But before we started recording, Kirsty and I were basically saying that we feel pretty strongly that any suggestion that the Mandalorian has been carefully, intricately plotted out from the beginning is a little bit funny and kind of laughable. Oh, which things don't have yeah, yeah, to no, be. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm not、know. saying it has to be. It's just. You know, I think there has been suggestions that oh, clearly that is the case because they've got all these plans for like a big Mandoverse with all these like interlocking shows, you know. And well, yeah, I think that's their plan: make more money. <laughs> yeah, in the broad sense, yeah, I'm sure that is the plan. But that's not to say that they've actually thought in detail about the different character arcs and you know where the characters going to go and what the journey is going to be. Because I feel like if they had, then you know what they've done with like Grogu and Luke. It would just be nonsensical, you know, from like a character development point of view. It's just bizarre. I think, from Din's perspective, obviously this trailer like strongly focuses on him still wrestling with the oh, I took my helmet off. Can I still think of myself as a Mandalorian? What is a Mandalorian? Like all those things that we were talking about towards the end of season two. That's obviously like going to be to an extent a focus of this season. So that's good. It's just like the Grogu stuff. I'm like, what are you doing with him? Is he just continuing to be a cute sidekick? Obviously, they show him using the Force more, but like all the stuff about him needing to be with his own kind is that just like in the past now? Although maybe they're gonna like, say his own kind is the Mandalorians. But yeah, because they already kind of did that with him, like having taking the, the little chainmail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like there's nothing wrong with it. It's all cute, you know. I just I'm forever going to be baffled by that choice to have Luke there and then like immediately like kind of go back on yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's true. I just don't really understand unless it was just like an exercise for like can we put Luke Skywalker in this and get away with it? Like, will the effects work? And and then what what more can we do with that down the road? But like that's not really a story decision. That's just kind of like ILM going to town, <laughs> which is. They're right.、But. I do feel like, in a way, John Favreau's sensibility is very similar to George Lucas's sensibility, and I think they're both very, very interested in technological innovations and driving、right. technology forward. And I personally feel like sometimes they do that at the expense of story, you know. And、mm. I, I feel like that's what you see in the prequels for Star Wars, and I do enjoy great chunks of those movies. You know, I have problems with them, but I enjoy them for the most part. Yes, obviously in the Mandalorian they develop the volume, you know, as this way of like showing the backgrounds in real time for the like actors and performers to like engage with, and George was just sort of like creating the rules for like CGI in general, you know, back in the prequels, and those are like really cool, impressive innovations, but at the same time I think it's easy for these like creators and producers to get so distracted by. Perfecting those aspects of things that they forget to tell, you know, like a truly coherent story. That like that might sound a little bit harsh, but that's kind of the vibe I get sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I definitely get that impression with like the Book of Boba Fett as well, in terms of like 
choosing to move away for two episodes and have more of the loop stuff. Yeah, for sure. I feel like that's pure tech de- tech demo level stuff, really. And they'd hired that YouTube guy at that point, right, to improve the loop stuff. Yes, they had him. So it's like, yeah, that's a clear priority for them. Not just like to focus on Luke specifically, but in terms of like that technology and what they're going to be able to do with it. And I guess that feeds into our discussion. You know, we're going to go into like, does Tarkin still work in Rogue One? Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. It's just like an element of Lucasfilm, ILM, Star Wars in general that we're not super psyched about. But I also get that other people really are. Like, I get that this is like groundbreaking stuff in terms of moving movies forward. Yeah. But to me, and I think you as well, if it comes at the expense of the story or like we feel like the story choices don't really make sense because they're leaning into certain things to justify experimenting with that technology, I don't think it really stands the test of time. Yeah. No, I agree. But does that matter? I don't know. Like, yeah. And I think it matters to different people to different degrees, doesn't it? So yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely interesting. But yeah, overall, it looked fun to me. I'm glad that they are clearly committing to this whole thing about Din wrestling with what it means to be a Mandalorian and stuff. I was also glad to see Dr. Pershing back in this trailer um, because obviously he worked with um, Werner Herzog's The Client um, in season one um, and him being there on Coruscant is interesting. I do wonder if that means we're going to go more into this whole like cloning thing, you know, that they've sort of like touched upon previously. And maybe whether they're going to go into, like, the whole Snoke connection thing. <laughs> I feel like... All I wanted was to study his blood. <laughs> I thought you were going to say all I wanted was Snoke. <laughs> See, there are elements of the season two finale that yeah, I love. Sure. Yeah, you've got, clearly got a much better recollection of it than me. <laughs> I, I loved Moff Gideon. I think he's so funny. I don't really understand what he's yeah. up to. Except from wanting to study Grogu's blood. <laughs> but he's just a big old nerd. He's having he just a, wants to do some He's having a lot of fun. Just for the sake of it, bless him. <laughs> but yeah, I guess there is that going to be that whole angle. Like, they're trying to, you know, re- kidnap these powerful force users and potentially clone them and stuff. I guess that ties into all the Snoke trust stuff. Yeah, because we've connected the whole Persian stuff and seen Coruscant and things in the trailer. There has been some speculation that they're folding in ideas from Rangers of the New Republic um, into the show. Um, because he obviously, after the whole Gina Carano situation, that show isn't going to exist as its own thing anymore. But presumably they had ideas that they wanted to explore that they can repurpose here. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see there's much like dissonance, I guess, between pure Mando stuff and plot threads that might have originally been intended for that show yeah because it was good to see Carson Tiva in this trailer and like you know they're not going to screw over the other actors because they've decided not to pursue that yeah. pilot presumably again we don't know for sure but like you know connecting the threads it does look like it was a decision based around Gina Carano right and what happened there but Paul Sun Hyung Lee is still going to be in this cinematic universe, the Mandoverse. Like, he still gets to play a part in this story. And you're right, it, does, it looks like they're kind of folding in those threads. Exactly. Which, you know, means that we don't have to watch another show. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really good. Um, and yeah, like you say, the other actors don't deserve to miss out just because someone acted out, basically. So, um, yeah, I'm glad to see like those people like show up here because, yeah, they might have otherwise not had a home 
in this season of the mandalorian so yeah are you looking forward to seeing trapper wolf again <laughs> only if they just repeatedly and very conspicuously just say his name because i find it hilarious being like um trapper wolf respond please hello trapper wolf speaking you, you know i just want as many references to his name as possible then it will make it valuable i think it's <laughs> Did you ever see, you know, they do those like videos of the Hasbro guys releasing the new toys and talking about them. Did you see the one where they talked about no. Trapper Wolf? And they were like, somehow adamant that it was like, this is not about Dave Filoni. <laughs> <laughs> this is Trapper Wolf. I was like, who is going to know who Trapper Wolf is if they're not a Dave Filoni fan? I'd love it if someone like got that figure and they're like, oh no, I'm just a completionist. I, I don't actually know who Dave Filoni is. <laughs> That'd be really funny. Oh my God. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. No, brilliant. So yeah, I think it's safe to say we both had fun with this trailer. We're looking forward to the show coming back. Um, we, we don't have like sky high expectations, you know, but... I'll be content for some fun Star Wars goodness, you know. I don't expect the earth from this show, you know. In case that wasn't clear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as long as I'm entertained, I'll be happy. And to be honest, I wouldn't even be opposed to being enraged sometimes because it's nice to feel things. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to wish for that because enraged. the season two finale was enough. <laughs> no, it's, it's reasonable. I tell you, is it? I don't like being contrarian. So like it just, I think it was hard around the season two finale because I was like, I don't know how to talk about this without pissing people off because other people loved it so much, you know? Well, we did a four hour drag of the Rise of Skywalker and people still listen to that. So it's fine. I'm presuming that the people who listened to that did not love that movie. Yeah, but I'd imagine a lot of the people who listened to us being grumpy about The Mandalorian probably also had conflicted feelings about it. So Maybe, yeah. Yeah, And I think we always put things in a way, you know, where we're not, like, dissing other people enjoying it. You know, absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. Um, But, yeah, this podcast is about our opinions on things. So, yeah, people (laughs) understand that. It's fine. Um, Okay. So let's move on to our final segment of this show um, because we want to revisit Rogue One. Um, Well, actually, we already have spoilers um, because to prepare for this show, we both went away and separately, alas, because (laughs) I can't even imagine how it would work to try and synchronise viewing. (laughs) Well, people do, do, don't they? they Like That was a big thing in the pandemic, people watching movies together remotely, but we've got the time zone factor so that's no, kind of exactly. tricky at the end of the day if you're doing that you're mostly just like texting each other and stuff and chatting which to be fair i do during movies anyway quite often um but anyway because of the way we watched it we we're both able to focus on the movie reflect on the movie and most personally compare it to andor and feel about and have a think about how that show has recontextualized our appreciation of rogue one um, so to start this off, I just thought it would be good to very briefly recap our original feelings about Rogue One because we had episodes about it because this podcast started shortly before Rogue One came out um, and we have a whole episode reviewing it in detail so people can go back and listen to that. I personally haven't listened to that since we recorded it so I can't remember what we said. Um, <laughs> Me neither. But I can... I can remember my like broad sentiments at the time. Um, so I enjoyed it. I had fun with it. Um, it definitely didn't give me anything like the ecstatic high that The Force Awakens had given me. Um, I wasn't expecting it to do that, you know. Um, but it was decent. And I feel like 
a prevailing part of my memory of it is kind of like some degree of annoyance that I felt like the Rogue One was being lauded as like a complete masterpiece and sort of being used to um, being compared to The Force Awakens in a way that was unfavorable to The Force Awakens. Mm. And I remember that bugging me at the time. Um, so yeah, that's one of my prevailing memories. How about you, Kirsty? What do you feel? Um, I think my feelings about Rogue One have been very like up and down over time, but I do remember really enjoying it when it first came out. And I was very much in like, oh my God, Star Wars is back and it's awesome vibes, you know, like everyone was swept up in that frenzy because it was only the second yeah. one, right? And we were deep into being excited about The Last Jedi as yes, well. Yes, of course. Um, we hadn't been doing the podcast for that long at that point. Um, actually, we'd only just started, really, hadn't yeah, we? Yeah, I, I think we started the podcast in autumn 2016. So, yeah, it would have been very yeah. recently. So, yeah, it was just, like, deep into Star Wars madness. And, like, it felt like that in the general pop culture climate of the time as well. Like, it wasn't just us. It was, like, everyone was really excited about Star Wars. You know? Yeah. Like, we... we you were even quoted in that New York Times article about how Star Wars fandom was like being more welcoming to female fans and how they had these two female leads in the new Star Wars films. Oh, wow, I like, completely there was just... that. God. <laughs> yeah, you remember my life better than I do. <laughs> well, I just remember that being so soon after the podcast started and it was like a nice little boost Yeah, for no, us. you're right. Actually, I do remember that happening now. Vaguely, but I remember. Um, yeah, no, you're right. It's... And in a way, there was it was just a like lot of quite excitement. nice to rewatch the movie because it did transport me back to that time in the whole experience of fandom, you know, because I feel like in some ways Rogue One, it's quite like a charming film because it feels kind of like naive in the kind of format it takes as a Star Wars film because it's still at that stage where everything Star Wars is new and exciting again because it'd been such a long gap since the prequels and stuff and people just wanted to see all the Star Wars things um, and yeah that comes through in the filmmaking of the movie I think yeah it's interesting that people were comparing it with The Force Awakens like either favourably or unfavourably because to my mind they're kind of doing they're trying to do the same thing in that they're trying to really tap into that nostalgia we all had and the excitement of like oh I recognise that thing but trying to tell a new story within that universe. So like The Force Awakens is obviously doing it in a more explicit, like they're trying to emulate to an extent the hero's journey of A New Hope. But Rogue One is trying to tap into like, well, we're just before A New Hope starts. So this is like very much part of that story. And that this is how that happened. This is how they got the Death Star plans, right? So they were already framing it as like a story concept that people would be familiar with. But when the story starts, you're like, oh, this does feel pretty different for Star Wars. And I think that's faded away since because we're kind of used to Star Wars being told in all these different formats now with the TV shows and like Solo and stuff. But at the time, it was like, whoa, they don't have the crawl. The music's different. It's a different composer. There are all of these new characters. It has like this. I think this is overstated to an extent. But there was very much an emphasis on it being like gritty Star yes. Wars. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's about the war part as opposed to the fantasy part. Yeah. Um, but that was definitely an element of it at the time, right? And you can see it in the film still. Yeah, no, exactly. And 
yes yeah, so i remember buying into that a bit at the time you know being like wow this is very different mode for stalls it's more like mature and like grown up and stuff and for me i had somewhat like ambivalent feelings about that i think so again i enjoyed the movie i did like it but you know i'm very much like Star Wars as a fairy tale you know i like the fantastical elements of star wars and stuff so yeah the tone of rogue one wasn't necessarily speaking to me as much as it did to some other people um and yeah that made it even more fascinated upon rewatching to feel like wow this is way goofier than i remembered <laughs> um because yeah, yeah i'd honestly forgotten how much humor there was you know particularly from k2so that character is mm-hmm. almost nothing but one-liners you know <laughs> um yeah and chirrut and baze's yeah. dynamic as well lots of banter exactly. yeah. and like Jin has lots of like quippy lines and stuff like everyone's a joker in this movie (laughs) so yeah like it was really fascinating to revisit because it was a very different movie in reality from the movie I'd kind of stored in my memory bank if that makes sense no same I think it'd been a long time since I'd watched it I think it must be at least four Mm. years yeah and um I must admit when we were like and I think it was my idea, so this is just me being very silly. But like after we watched Andor and we were like, oh, we should watch Rogue One again. Once it came to actually watching it in prep for this podcast, I started to feel like, oh, I've got a bit of homework Aww. here. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be watching Rogue One otherwise. Yes. So I'd, I like put it off for a couple of days. But when I actually started to watch it, I was like, I'm enjoying this more than I thought I would. So that was a nice feeling. Nice. No, I was really glad because, yeah, I could sense a bit of like, oh, God, we have to rewatch Rogue One. <laughs> so because it's not one of our yeah. favourites. No, no, and I totally get you know. that. I'm, I'd almost be more psyched, I think, about rewatching Solo because, again, that's a movie I haven't seen in a few years. Um, and, yeah, I'd like to see how that's changed, you know, fr- from the version I remember. Um, because, yeah, it's actually really interesting to look at Rogue One because I use Letterboxd and it lets you log rewatches and stuff so you get a really clear record of when you've watched something. And so I've watched Rogue One four times in my life, apparently. On Thursday, December 15th, which is clearly opening day. Saturday, December 17th, so two days later. And then Thursday, December 29th, um, which was with my dad. And then you have to jump forward oh my god, like six years later or whatever, to today. <laughs> oh, so you literally haven't watched it at all like on Disney Plus? No, I don't think so. Not from oh, this. So okay. I've probably watched it even further back than you. So it sounds like you have watched it at some point in between. I think so, but I haven't been using Letterboxd as long as you, so I don't have... This is really dorky of us, isn't it? <laughs> well, we're, we're on a Star Wars Yeah, we, we, it, go, it goes without saying, Kirsty. <laughs> I don't remember exactly, but I know... Well, when did Disney Plus start? Maybe I have seen it more recently and I just don't remember. It started in 2019. It feels like I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah. Well, a few years. 2019, for example, is a long time. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, like you, it was just like going in. And maybe it's the Andor effect as well because Andor has such a different tone, even though it's obviously like feeding into it. I, I... Yeah. the, The movie in reality felt different from what my memory of it was. And I... I wonder how much of that is down to like the fandom discourse around it and like the emphasis on Vader's hallway scene and stuff like that, you know? In the actual movie, that's a very small part. It's just kind of almost tacked on to the end. Um, and the movie is much more about following these characters who are kind of like, you know, a bunch of misfits and people who weren't like formally part of the rebellion, but they just kind of join up on a whim because yeah. <laughs> they're, they're in Jeddah, you know, and 
and they're like well come along with us and they just ended up being part of the crew exactly yeah and, and i will say that upon rewatch you, you're very very conscious it was a troubled production um yeah because, it's it's kind yeah, of messy it really is and it's kind of like i guess the story works on a very very basic level but there's just so much about the first two thirds in particular that just feels like so rushed and it just doesn't land you know like Jin's whole story you know where obviously she's the child of the scientist you know and you just cut forward from her being found by Saw as a little kid and the next time you see her she's like in a prison van you know and you have like zero context for her life in between and it gives poor um, Felicity Jones a lot of heavy lifting to do, you know, in terms of trying to, like, convey, you know, like, well, I'm hard bitten, I've had, like, a hard life, you know, living on the streets and stuff, and everyone's let me down. And I feel like there's lots of telling in Rogue One, you know, you're told about characters' states of mind and how they feel, but you don't really feel it or see it play out, you know? So I feel like it's the kind of movie that really could have benefited from more time because my understanding is they filmed it obviously with gareth edwards realized it was a bit of a mess brought in tony gilroy who like massively rejigged the whole thing like had to write new material and there were reshoots and stuff and that throughout all this they still needed to make the same date so i feel like if they'd given them an extra year it would have been a much stronger movie um because then they really would have been able to think properly about how all the stuff fit together Whereas now it's kind of a bit of a Frankenstein's monster of a movie and it, it works functionally, but it doesn't properly cohere for me. Um, and I know it does for lots yeah, of you're missing people something. Um, and I'm glad it does. But yeah, I just see it as a very, very flawed movie. Um, not without merit and enjoyable, but very flawed. I think it works depending on like what you're in it for. Yes. And if you're in it for like, Jin as a protagonist who you really buy into her journey like she does so many like heel turns just based on like and I maybe this is just like a Star Wars thing in general as well although it's not though because the thing is we're comparing it with Andor and night and day oh absolutely yeah complete night and day you know in terms of the quality of the writing the emphasis on the character arcs and it makes me frustrated for yeah Jin and Felicity as an actor because I'm like man she could have had so much more there and really arguably like deserved more as the protagonist because as i'm watching it now i'm like well i care about cassian way more yeah same <laughs> you know and again and it's fascinating to rewatch it because seeing cassian in this reminds me of why i was never excited for andor to begin with because poor yeah. diego luna gets funny, so little it? to do in this movie and yeah there's barely like a character there you know beyond a few lines about you know finding hope and inspiration you know all very like abstract generic things you don't get much of a sense of who he really is as a person whereas that's all that Andor is you know that's what the whole show is about so yeah like it definitely underlined what an achievement Andor is I think yeah it makes me grateful that they decided to take that plunge and that Diego Luna was fully on board and they really gave that character that justice but it also man I'm like wow I wish I had the same for Jin and and Chirrut and Baze and Bodhi like they all deserve yeah. better. And there's potentially um, really fascinating stories to tell about all of them, right? Because they all have really interesting setups as characters. It's just there's so much going on with Rogue One because, you know, a lot of the film is about bringing the team together, you know, just 
getting people to meet each other, you know, and team up. Yeah. So there's not much time to focus on them individually and really like explore them and have those like reflective moments. There's not much time, but again, I think it does come down to choices because I was comparing it again with Andor because that's what we're meant to be doing. And I was like, what well, they assembled a team for that show too. We have that heist arc. But even that, with the amount of time that you spent with those characters, I think it's just like the quality of the writing. Yeah. Yeah. Something about it, like it just felt so much more... I was just more invested and it felt like they could really linger on things a bit more and you could have these slow still moments with the characters interacting in a way that you just don't have an awful lot of them yeah. here i mean you you do have some and i was like clinging on to them but and it, it's not it's not necessarily a bad thing because the action is all great too it's just that as like this big epic action movie they had different priorities yeah, right for sure and yeah and i feel like you know of Jin, like to compare it to force awakens which is the movie that obviously immediately preceded it like with Ray, it like in in Force Awakens, you also have a hell of a lot going on. You know, there's lots of action. They've got a lot of plot to tell in that movie, but you know, think about that like five minute sequence where we're just spending time with Ray on Jakku, you know, and learning what her routine is and just getting a sense for her life and how lonely she is and stuff. You know, I wish we'd just had the equivalent of that for Jin, you know, because that alone could have made a big difference. You know, and really setting her up and making her more of like a real person from the start of it all, you know, rather than just mm. jerking us into her life and then never really pausing to explain, you know, what what she's starting from. Yeah, definitely. I feel like Galen as a character as well is kind of interesting in theory, but like ugh, they don't really go there enough with, you know, his level of culpability and that, moral ambiguity of you know this guy made the death star but after andor you know with seeing cassian imprisoned and being made to assemble those pieces against his will i don't know i don't know how to feel about galen yeah (laughs) and i don't think because obviously the movie was made first they can't they can't bring in that stuff after the fact you know so it just feels very surface yeah. level like i still think that mads does a good job i i like his hollow scene and i i i know it's cheesy but i kind of love the stardust stuff yeah no no it's sweet and it's like a good shorthand as well you know because then they don't need to like have Jin give like a big soppy speech about oh my god this is my dad's plans and stuff like you just know what you need to know because the plan is called stardust it it makes it yeah. much more efficient as like storytelling which is good um but yeah just to backtrack to galen i totally agree with you on that it's um oh god it's just such a waste of mads mickelson yeah i think it's a bit of a cop-out as well they're like well he th- he knew that they would do it without him i'm like does that matter yeah and it's <laughs> kind of like to me if you have mads mickelson in your movie and you barely use him and you give him very little to do as an actor apart from that great speech in the hologram which is a great speech i love that um, it's kind of like having like a souped up Ferrari and keeping it in the garage kind of like you have the thing but you just don't know what to do with it <laughs> it's like <laughs> oh my god it's funny it's just a movie that's like packed to the gills right like, there are so many great actors but yeah I don't know how well they're all utilised in their particular roles yeah. although I will say that Ben Mendelsohn is having the time of his yes. life 
oh god yeah i love him so much <laughs> krennic is wonderful and honestly yeah, i feel like i want him um, and more stuff Moff gideon in um the mandalorian they're yeah. both such similar characters in a lot of ways and i'd love to just see them ma- smash together like action figures you know <laughs> want to see how they spark off each other i feel like that'd be really fun so just both so like flamboyant and yeah, I just love it. I I know Ridiculous. that won't happen, yeah. and I know that Krennic is long dead by the time that the Mandalorian takes place. But I don't know, like do a prequel or something. Moff <laughs> Gideon was alive. He could show up in Andor. Yeah. Who oh knows? God, that would be so cool. I would love that. Please give us more Krennic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they've got to like ramp up the menace, you know, because we obviously had the um, stinger, didn't we, at the end of Andor, showing that they're building the Death Star. So it would make mm. sense in line with that that. Uh, that they would perhaps bring in Krennic. Although that might be a bit too fanservice because Tony Garori is like the anti-John Favreau in that respect in terms of, yeah, not giving in to baser instincts and just focusing on what's needed for the story at hand, which I respect, even though I do really want to see yeah. Should we talk about Mon Mothma and Saw? Yes. It's obviously over Yeah, yeah, there. no, that would be really interesting. Yes, I think you were saying, weren't you, Kirsty, that Mon Mothma, you watch this and... You're like, Christ, she's nothing. <laughs> it's so well, I knew that because I knew that pre Andor I had never cared about her. But it was still like it's uniquely maddening watching it in hindsight. Cause I'm like, oh my God. There's so much you could be doing with her. And it's like she's such she's such a great, compelling character in Andor that I'm like, what leads her to this point? And I, I'm it makes me curious how they're going to tie them together like how do they get to the point where she's kind of being a little cowardly with oh i'm sorry Jin. there's nothing we can do about the full support of the council you know it's like wh- isn't this what you guys were leading yes. to you wanted her to get this <laughs> you wanted her to get the information <laughs> from her dad about the plans and then you're just not going to do anything with it although she does look pleased when she realizes that the crew are yes. gone you know, it's what she personally wanted, but she feels like her hands are tied. So I guess she's still kind of in that politician yeah. role. No, exactly. I've always got the impression that she was kind of like functioning very much as like, she's obviously more practical than this, but like, crucially, she was a figurehead. So she was trying to be this like unifying figure for the rebellion at the point we see her in Rogue One. And in a way that I think makes it interesting to think about what they'll do with her in season two of Andor. Because I feel like they'll have to show her stepping over into the rebellion more, you know, and doing more in practical terms with them. And I guess that's going to be yet another headache for her, isn't it? That even though you're on the rebellion, you're still dealing with all these different factions. Because, yeah, there is all that awareness of the fact that Saw is this, like, wild card, you know, that they can't control and they can't predict. Yeah, and she's very dismissive of them, isn't she? So it's like, what's going to happen between them? Like I would love to see a scene where they actually like meet and and battle. Oh, that would be amazing! I really hope we get that. I I feel like Tony Gore is very very like detail oriented, you know, in terms of lining things up between Rogue One and what's happening in the show. Um, so I feel like we can reasonably expect that. I won't like be upset or anything if that it doesn't work out that no. way. But I think I could see that happening. Yeah, the great thing about Andor, at least based on what we've seen so far, is like having faith in the writers to make the right yeah. decisions. So if they don't do something specifically that we're expecting, that's fine, because I'll happily watch whatever it is they're yeah. doing. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting, like knowing that Tony Gilroy was obviously brought in 
to do so, you know some form of damage control here but this is not his original project and like to think about man i would really be curious to see the version of it that gareth edwards was putting together but i would also love to see tony gilroy's true version of this film like what would it have been if he had been creating these characters in the story from scratch yeah exactly i think in a way andor kind of shows how incredible rogue one could have been if Tony Garoy had been working on it from the beginning and it, I, I feel horrible to say that you know because everything I've seen from Gareth Edwards shows that he does have a lot of talent I, I do feel like if you know there had been Tony Garoy there as like a creative force in that movie from the beginning rather than having to come in towards the end and sort of try and like awkwardly retrofit things I feel like it would have made Rogue One a much much stronger movie um, but yeah you're right I shouldn't pin it all on Gareth Edwards because that's not fair no, I mean, it just it's like that's what it looks like from an outsider's perspective, right? He was taken off the project, although obviously he's still credited as the director, and Gilroy was brought in, but I'm sure there was much more yeah. to it. No, you're right. Like, you can't isolate things as just one person's decisions. Exactly, and we'll probably never know um, the full story, but hopefully we'll find out a bit more at some point. <laughs> yeah, but it is just interesting to think about how he is so far with Andor. Like, you feel like it is... A continuation of it but tonally like they're just so different yeah exactly it's yes i feel like and or in a lot of ways kind of what people have in their memories is rogue one being yeah when people talk about rogue one being like this masterpiece i'm like okay i can see how you'd have a perception of rogue one as a potential masterpiece like you can see that it could be but it's not you know yeah, and it's also, um, I love just how you can see little glimmers in Diego Luna's performance in Rogue One, you know, that to me do take on a bit of new meaning. Now, you know, when you see um, Andor and you have the more context, like he has a lot of subtlety, for example, in his first scene when he like kills the guy on the Ring of Catherine or whatever it's called. Um, and, you know, again, when you watch that with the knowledge of all the crap that Cassian has been through in his life, you know, you feel the pain that must have caused him to make that decision. But it ultimately goes back to what Lufin is talking about in Andor, about just the level of sacrifice that's required to be part of the rebellion, you know, and how you have to make these like shitty, awful choices that under any other circumstances would be evil, basically. But because of this horrendous situation the galaxy is in they have to become the bad guys in certain situations and it's crap but mm-hmm. it's necessary and yeah i felt like that speech from lufin you know that's very much reflective of the mindset that cassian's developed by the events of rogue one yeah that's interesting to think about the cassian's kind of turning into him yeah because it struck me like when Mon Mothma introduces like Captain Cassian Andor it's like oh wow these two like actually know each other and work together now like that's it's so interesting to think about with just having season one of Andor so far and like that Mon doesn't really know anything about him yeah and now he's like brought into the fold formally and is considered you know respected obviously a subordinate but appear in a way as well yeah no exactly he's clearly very much part of the machinery of the rebellion by the time the movie starts um, and yeah, it's just, it makes it even more fascinating to see 
what's going to go on with Cassian himself in the second season because presumably we're going to see him from go from this new recruit who's yeah he's been for a lot already by the time he ends season one but he's still going to be like new in terms of like the level of trust he's going to be afforded you know so he's presumably going to be bought he's going to be brought more into the inner circle so he's kind of treated as like a mercenary you know when he was dropped off on the um, planet to help with the heist um whereas at the end he's clearly positioning himself as i want to be a proper full part of this rebellion um and yeah like you say i think he is going to absorb some of that philosophy from Lufin, because i guess i I feel like in a way that it makes his arc in rogue one better because in Rogue One, what he goes from is, you know, being a bit cynical, you know, having to make these, like, shitty choices, you know, in terms of, like, murdering people for the cause of the rebellion. And then, like, Jin brings him back to, like, a more pure hope and optimism, you know, which is kind of, like, beautiful and is cemented at the end when they're, like, hugging and there's, like, this budding romance that can never happen because they both die. Um, yeah, they get really close in that yeah. elevator. No, I love that scene. That's one of the best scenes. I forgot how yeah. close. That, that, that was romantic. <laughs> I, I don't want to listen to anyone who says that was like a platonic look between them. That was romantic. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, I just feel like it gives much more weight to that turn that Cassian has in the movie. So I feel like as it stands in the movie, if you just look at it in isolation, it does feel a little bit lightweight, kind of. You're not, you don't really believe that like Cassian has anything to has any reason to change he's always been like on the side of the good guys you know and it feels like a little bit of a superficial change but i feel like andor will give it more weight Uh, sorry i'm rambling hopefully you can say something more coherent kirstie (laughs) no i i kind of i feel the same way like i really enjoyed watching cassian in this movie in a way that i hadn't before um and I found myself getting like internally like a bit defensive of him when Jin is trying to call him out and like, oh, you went up there to try and kill my dad. I was like, you have no idea what this boy's been through. <laughs> How dare you speak out of turn, Jin? <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> we should get her to watch. Uh, we should get her to watch Andor right away. <laughs> but that's kind of also Jin's purpose, right? She, the idea is that she's brought in and she is very like cynical and and jaded and like she just doesn't have this personal connection to things until she does and i i do think that's a little unearned through what the movie attempts to do but it's just kind of the nature of it's kind of what i was talking about with anna karenina right it's gonna have to be a bit rushed with a movie on this scale um yeah i know there is a book out there it's rebel rising but you know the average person watching rogue one won't have read that so no exactly and yeah that is one of my major criticisms i think of rogue one that Jin goes from this like hard bitten cynical street kid to like getting very emotional and soppy after seeing a hollow of her dad and then suddenly she's this like inspirational Joan of Arc-esque re- rebel leader um, it, it just felt too quick you know I think that turn can absolutely work if you like, have enough set up and then you have like a like a convincing enough about turn but I just feel like it wasn't quite there it was almost there They it's so close to being what it needs to be but yeah, for me, it just doesn't quite hit home. But I know it does for lots of people. So yeah, like I think I've just been fussy, you know. Yeah, I guess it almost... And it's just, yeah, it's the nature of that kind of story where you have this character who's meant to be so, sort of like an audience 
self-insert. It's kind of like Luke with the first one, right? Where it's like they're they're newcomers to the cause, and yet they're the ones taking the center stage and like giving all these speeches. <laughs> it like does feel a bit yeah. unearned. Um, whereas you have like a background character like Melshi, who now you know you've seen somewhere else in the series, and like what he struggled to do as well. And um, but. I found myself paying more attention to him when I was watching too. Oh my too, god, I feel really you know? bad. I didn't even notice Melshi, really. Oh, it's okay. He's a glup shito. <laughs> he is. Thank you. He is. Like, they name yeah. him and he has lines and stuff. And I, I did, found, I found myself paying way more attention to him with, like, finding the master switch and then, like, Chirrut having to take over oh, that stuff. Oh, he was that in guy. The past. Oh. Yeah, he was talking right. to Bodhi. He was like, look, well, he wasn't... There were a couple of guys in that part, but he was definitely, like, part of that. Like, when Bodhi was talking about what they needed to find and, like, Cassian was saying, like, Melshi and that will take over, like, on the ground here and we'll go up and find the actual data file. But I just found myself paying more attention yeah. to him. There was there was another character, too, but I can't remember what his name like was. Like, someone who's also in Andor? Like, I don't think so. But he was, like, part of the Rogue One crew. And he was talking to Bodhi about, like, you're going to need to describe this master switch for us because we can't just, like, stumble across something like yeah, that. Yeah, of know? course. Um, but, yeah, usually, like, in the past, from my memory of watching this film years ago, like, I just kind of gloss over those characters and go from Bodhi to, like, Chirrut and Bays, right? Where you have Chirrut walking across to switch. Yeah. And I think that's what I was doing, yeah. yeah. I was sort of, like, airbrushing out everyone else and <laughs> just focusing on Chirrut and Bays. Yeah, my experience of it was slightly different this time because of Andor, but I totally understand why Melshi would not be at the forefront of your mind. <laughs> I think it's just because the prison arc hit so yeah. hard, you know, when he and Cassian escape together and, like, this is the next time we see him. Like, he might show up in in Andor Season 2, but who knows? Yeah, I'd hope he would because, yeah, I, I just really want to see them, like, coming together as, like, a cohesive unit because... Yeah, without that, it feels like um, the events of Rogue One wouldn't be possible. So it'd be good to be convinced that they're all working together and they're like working together in a more formal way. So it all feels a little bit opportunistic and scattershot in the first season of Andor. Like they're still waiting for everything to cohere because everything's still so driven by factionalism. Mm. Um, and also, before we wrap it up, we need to talk about CGI, Kirsty. So we did allude no. to that. So yeah, what are your feelings about creepy computerized talking? He looks like a video game he character. He really does, yeah. It's really, it's a shame. And I, at the time, it's not to dismiss the work that people did yes. on it. You know, obviously technically impressive, but I just don't, I don't like it. Like, I, I think it's not right for Peter Cushing. No. And I, you know, I I know the context of um, Leia at the end was a little different because Carrie Fisher was alive when they were putting this movie together. And I think for some people, you know, it was extra poignant to have her at the end in the context of Carrie dying around that time. But I just, I just, I don't like it as a, a thing. I know it's not going away. I know we're seeing more and more of it. We were talking about Luke earlier. Like it's definitely going to become more of a thing. It's just not my cup yeah. of tea. No, exactly. And yeah, for like with Peter Cushing specifically, there's like unique um, ethical issues attached to that because Peter Cushing died a long time ago, I think in the 90s, like long before any of this would have been conceivable. 
you, you know, it would never have even crossed his mind for a single moment that anything remotely like this, you know, which is basically digital resurrection, he wouldn't have dreamed that it was possible. And he also never had children, you know, so it's not like he had any family who could sign off on the use of his likeness or anything. Could be like, oh yeah, dad would think this was like a cool idea or something, you know. I feel like it's just some lawyer somewhere, you know, who happens to have charge of like his estate and his like, I don't know how to describe that, like his, the rights to his image or whatever, which, mm. yeah, I, it just makes me feel icky. It just makes me feel icky. I don't like him. Yeah, and in the context of the story, I'm like, why did it have to be him? Is it just because you wanted Tarkin and Vader yeah. there? Because like, you could have had Krennic squabbling with any superior. Again, another thing I really noticed re-watching this is there were like lots of um, me- member berries. You know, there were like lots of moments from other Star Wars things where you really got the feel like they were just wanting to shove in your face that, hey, remember this other thing from a previous Star Wars film, specifically the original trilogy? Here it is again. You know, like, there's a very, very brief scene with 3PO and R2-D2, for example, you know, which serves Mm. no purpose whatsoever. It's just there so you could be like, I remember them! And I feel like Tarkin is that as well. It's obviously meant to be a bit more of like a showpiece moment, you know, because of all the work it took to create that likeness of Peter Cushing. Um, but yeah, it's just, I feel it's so misguided and ultimately the technology, it's just, it's just not there, not anywhere near there. You know, when this movie came out in 2016, like not when you put him against real human yes. actors, because the difference, like with the layer thing at the end, obviously you only see her for a second, but you also don't see her like interacting with someone. She turns around and says yes. hope, but like he has full on scenes. Exactly. Uh, and did you notice that, um, like, I find it really weird, that, like, the way it's shot, kind of, because they show the guy running into the room where Leia is, and she's just completely stationary with her arms at her side. Yeah. And it's sort of yeah. like um, in a video game, you know, where, like, the NPC yeah. ha- hasn't, like, isn't moving like a real person. Activated, yeah. They're just waiting to be yeah. activated. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah it, it just adds to the uncanniness of the whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's funny. funny. Oh my god, it's hilarious. Um, but yeah, so I think it's safe to say that while we can respect all the hard work and effort that went into the CGI stuff for this movie, we feel it ultimately wasn't worth the effort. And yeah, we're both queasy about the fact it's still something Lucasfilm is clearly very, very interested in pursuing, even though they're now going with different means of technology to try and get there. Um, I kind of just wish they'd give up, but I know they won't do that. I know I'm just trying to fight against progress. <laughs> yeah, this is progress yeah, I don't well, that's want. that's the thing. It's, yeah, I know I sound like a Luddite, but I also it just makes me uncomfortable with like how things are going with AI. And I, I just like, to what end? What are you trying to do? Because it, it, in my opinion, it doesn't serve story. No, not at all. So it's like, at least be upfront about what your goals are. But I think those goals are too nefarious for people to like openly discuss i know john favreau like alluded to it in um one of the mando documentaries but all of these companies have invested interests that i don't i don't think are in our interests as As people (laughs) with no profit to be made from those things so um what about the vader scene did that hit you differently at all god um I guess I remember being quite strongly against it, I think, in the past when we were talking about Rogue One. 
and I feel like I must mm. have mellowed because it's not it didn't like enrage me or like work me up or anything in a negative way yeah. uh, it still yeah. felt a little bit like su- surplus to requirements I guess but at the end of the day I can see more of a story case for it in in the sense that you know if you end the movie with Jin and Cassie and on the beach embracing and being killed it is a bummer you know, and obviously showing like Vader massacring a bunch of people is also a bummer from a certain point of view. <laughs> but it does at least lead up to the moment where we get the thing being handed to Leia and hope. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Ultimately, like as badass as Vader's being, he yeah, fails. Exactly. So, you know? and they're all working as a team, and they have a specific goal, and it's you know people die, but like he didn't succeed at what he was there yeah. to do. Exactly. I, I feel like it was less masturbatory than I remembered it being. So I was grateful. Honestly, for that. I think a huge part of that is like more about the fandom's reaction to yeah. it over time and how it's been like heralded as this, you know, the big thing from Rogue One when actually it's not. And like, I think connecting it to Luke in season two of Mando, like, that's the other side of the coin, right? It's basically the same thing, but like from the good guy's perspective. Yes. I think it's just like taken on a life of its own in the fandom discourse when actually like as part of the film it's really not that bad and it kind of shows the extent of the rebels sacrifice yeah. and yeah that as was I said them working as a seamless team with a unified goal and and Vader not succeeding as in all that exactly. violence. Exactly. So I think the lesson is just tune out fan discourse as much as possible and you'll enjoy things more. <laughs> Um, because yeah I think you're absolutely right it's sort of like when you watch it more on its own terms you can I think you're less cynical about it you know so I think the fan discourse can make you very cynical about things and like read the worst possible motives into things and I'm not saying there wasn't an element of them being like oh yeah it's going to be really cool to show Vader slashing all these people and like killing them Um, that was probably an element of it but I don't think it was the whole point you know which I feel like I did think about at one point yeah, I wonder if part of it is that as fans we worry about how Lucasfilm will be like gauging reactions and like what they'll choose to pursue as a result of like how fans seem to be receiving things. And I think Mando went one way and Andor went another. And it's interesting that Tony Gilroy, who was actually like attached to Rogue One, didn't play into those things in the same way that John Favreau obviously yeah. did. Exactly. It's really interesting. Um and yeah, and I, I agree with that suggestion as well that I think a part of the strength of the reaction is because there's like this fear about what Lucasfilm will do with that reaction (laughs) (laughs) and whether it will um, cause ill effects or positive effects because it truly can go either way (laughs) yeah but like I in hindsight when you're watching the film again it's like they were relatively restrained with Vader yeah I know he didn't technically need to be part of it but like I enjoy the scene of him with Krennic, I think that's funny. I think that's a good character moment for yes. Krennic. I mean, you, you get some of like Anakin's sass in there. Um, I think it's funny in hindsight watching Vader's minion. Yes! And when people oh, I loved him so much. Was, he was no. great. I, I wonder if that actor's still alive, actually. I need to find out. <laughs> Sorry, that's a tangent. Please go on, Kirsty. I don't recognize him or anything, but um, I just remember when the trailer came out, people were like, what if that's. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So I think we just saw him from the back, didn't we? And yeah, yeah. it really, really triggered people. Okay, so he's called Vanny. Yeah, that's his name. Bless him. 
Is he just like Vader's butler? Oh, wait, no, he's in that Lego holiday special. Yes, isn't he, he is. Yeah, he serves a very important part in that. <laughs> that was really funny. So, yeah, more sinister servants, please. I, I just love it so much. Okay, so the actor who played Vanny um, is Martin Gordon. I mean, he's not had any credits since disobedience in 2017. So I hope he's enjoying a very happy and peaceful retirement and is not dead. Um, But (laughs) this is morbid. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to (laughs) stop. So that brings us to the end. No. (laughs) Okay, but steering away from Vanny, um, because all good things have to come to an end. Um, do you have any final thoughts that you want to say about Rogue One, Kirsty, before we wrap this up? I mean, as I kind of said earlier, my feelings go back and forth on it because I think it's flawed. Yes. Like, foundationally, because of like the trouble production that they had. Like, that's not a secret, right? And parts of it feel very rushed. The pacing's kind of strange. I think certain acts are much stronger than others. But, like, you have fun with it. Yes. You know? So it's, like, complicated when we we're watching it with the hindsight of andor i think andor highlights a lot of its flaws yeah but i also think it strengthens it because it's like i care about cassian now i care about mon mothma i care about saw like i'm really curious to see how these characters end up where they are exactly like because saw go like what is saw doing in this film When you see him in Andor, it's like, what? Yeah. Save the rebellion. <laughs> Obviously, he's the a, dream. He's a bit quirky. His death is so, <laughs> weird. so weird. He just gives up. <laughs> and, and that's the sort of thing I'm talking about, I think, when I say about how the character writing in this movie just is not there. It's not cohesive. You know, it doesn't, like you say, it makes no sense that he would just stay there like that, you know, given mm. the nature of him. Um, but yeah, no, I agree with you. While the movie you know it highlights some of the ways in which rogue one is lacking it does also give rogue one a stronger payoff doesn't it because you're so invested in cassian thanks to the events of andor that you know by the time he and jen are hugging on that beach at the end of the movie i I really felt that you know it was a real like emotional gut punch because i know how much cassian's been through to get to that point you know and how much he's sacrificed and how awful his life's been in so many ways and the fact that he's still finding like love and triumph at such a tragic moment that really did move me in a way and I wasn't expecting to Mm. feel quite as strongly as I did at that moment and I've certainly never felt as strongly about that scene as I did in this latest viewing so yeah I feel like Andor is the best thing that could have happened to Rogue One basically and yeah it's good I'm glad we will I'm glad we will I'm glad we we watched it because it was very <laughs> worthwhile and yeah I enjoyed it and it makes me want to rewatch Solo eventually as well even though sadly we don't have a Disney Plus series to recontextualize that movie for us like we do here yeah and apparently Ron Howard was asked recently about Solo too and he was like oh that's entirely fan driven Lucasfilm yeah. not no <laughs> considering that which no. surprised yeah, me yeah it's but, a pity um yeah, thinking about the end scene between Jen and Cassian, I remember at the end of season one of Andor, um, it got, and I think I mentioned this on the pod when we were talking about it, when he says, like, your father would be proud of you, I was like, is he thinking about his mum in that moment and how proud she she yeah. is of him? And, like, 
you know, the finale makes it... I know, obviously, that wouldn't be their intent as they were writing Rogue One. But it's very possibly Tony but, like, Gilroy's did you feel intent that? when writing and all. Maybe, yeah. You know, that might have been in his mind. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just... I wish that Jin had more of an insight into Cassian's life. And I know he, like, alludes to it. Like, I've been in this fight since I was six years old and stuff but like it feels kind of one-sided yeah. doesn't it I feel like we need like a deleted scene or something you know like fan fiction maybe you know like where you just have like scenes that didn't make the cut but people can imagine that they happened and that there was like disclosure between them because yeah maybe they had more time on that beach that we didn't see and they had some conversations yeah oh gosh um but yeah no brilliant i enjoyed that discussion kirsty so thank you for revisiting rogue one with me it was fun um thank you yeah fantastic so let's wrap it up here i'm rachel and you can find me on twitter at rachel1918 and on tumblr at star wars nonsense i'm kirsty and you can find both of us on twitter at scavengers horde until next time bye bye